Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. My special thanks go out to Wellington Management for sponsoring this mini-series, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier. Wellington Management serves as an asset manager and trusted advisor to clients representing more than $1 trillion in assets worldwide. Wellington has explored long-term sustainability issues since the 1970s and continues this practice today through internal research, engagement, and its innovative climate research initiative with top-ranked think tank Woods Hole Research Center. Wellington's investors strive to assess investments holistically through the triangulation of insights across equity, fixed income, and ESG research. The firm's sustainable investing practice also features market-leading impact, stewardship, and climate capabilities. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. In January, James Aitken told me, It doesn't matter what you think about ESG. The clamor will only increase. Fund flows will accelerate. And we need to set our cynicism aside and be mindful of the consequences. It's going to be with us for a long time to come. Ever since, I've grown increasingly curious about the megatrend of sustainable investing. Climate change dominated the discussion at Davos a few weeks after, and social issues about the treatment of workers are front and center since the onset of COVID-19. This miniseries, Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is my effort to learn alongside you through conversations with serious, passionate practitioners in the field. For the next month, you'll hear conversations twice a week in a familiar style and format, all focused on this important investment area. 
My guest on today's show in the sixth episode of Sustainable Investing, The Next Frontier, is Richard Lawrence, the executive chairman of Overlook Investments, a leading value-oriented investment firm in Asia that he founded in 1991. Richard was an early guest on the show telling Overlook's story, and that conversation follows in the feed. Over the years, he grew passionate about the environment and ESG principles and quietly integrated them in Overlook's research process starting a decade ago. Our conversation covers the ESG integration lens at Overlook. We discuss stories of early governance challenges in Asia and the development of modern finance technology, social issues related to the quality of businesses, and environmental considerations of excluding industries, reporting challenges, principles, and trade-offs. We close with Richard's philanthropic work on climate change, and in the closing questions, his take on U.S.-China relations. I want to take a quick sec and remind you of our premium service and free mailing list. For a premium membership, you can support the show, access the entire library of transcripts, and a few other special nuggets that come up from time to time. You can also sign up to our mailing lists of a small selection of the best content we see. Both are available on buttons at the top of the homepage at the website, capitalallocatorspodcast.com. Please enjoy this sixth episode of Sustainable Investing The Next Frontier, my conversation with Richard Lawrence. Richard, great to see you. Great. Thank you so much, Ted. Let me just say at the start that I was one of the, I think in the top 15, the first 15 or 20 presenters, and I've been so impressed with the success you've had. And I, I feel like at some level, I feel very proud about what you've done. So it's a delight to be here again. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. This is something that has been near and dear to your heart for a long time. And why don't we just start with what was your history at thinking about ESG at Overlook? I think when we look at ESG, we separate them into three distinct buckets. And all of them have their unique characteristics, their unique challenges. And so from our history, we started out with the governance that governance, when I went to Asia in 1985, corporate governance was an enormous issue. Most of the companies we invested in had controlling shareholders, and so they were really in control of the governance. And the social work started sort of 10 years later, and the environmental work started 10 years later. So it's important to look at that sequencing. But if we just talk about the governance, I can share a couple of stories from really the old days of my early experience on fighting for corporate governance in Asia. The first one happened around 1987-1988. prior company I worked for owned a share in a property company and the owners weren't behaving themselves. We had really hard evidence that they weren't behaving themselves, but they didn't seem to listen to us. And we finally, we went to them and said, look, sir, you can either talk to us privately or you can talk to us publicly. And they said, yeah, we'll, we'll talk to you publicly. So we drew up and really got all the evidence, and we actually filled out a full-page ad in the South China Morning Post a couple of days before the EGM that we had called. And it was pretty damning, really. I wouldn't have wanted something like that to be said about me. But, but anyway, we called the EGM, and we were going to battle it out. To what end, I was never really quite sure. But then the night before the EGM, my apartment in Hong Kong got ransacked. And... <laughs> 
they didn't take anything. It was purely one of those things like, here's a message. And I don't know why they singled me out for the uh, ransacking, but I was probably living in the cheapest apartment with the lowest level of security. And then we went on and, of course, we weren't successful with that. We brought a lot of publicity, wrecked their reputation, but we weren't really successful. Then if you fast forward about 12 or 13 years, at this point, I was really, it was post 97, 98 in the Asian crisis. I was very much a fledging fund manager. I struggled to attract whatever capital I could. But one of my large positions was a Korean company called Taekwong Industrial. It had been founded by one of the real giants of the Asian textile industry. And and this guy was totally unlike every other Korean manager who had loaded up going into the Asian crisis with debt, and most of them went bankrupt. This guy, Mr. Lee, he was different, man. He had no debt, and he depreciated assets like no one I had ever seen before. In fact, he built a $600 million spandex Lycra facility that were back-to-back facilities, and he depreciated the whole thing in three years. And he was a guy who didn't like to pay taxes, obviously. But as a result, the stock was at two times earnings. It was in one of my major positions, and they obviously didn't care about shareholders. And so I went to them, and they really wouldn't do anything. So eventually, I was introduced to a lawyer who found a loophole at that time. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a loophole that allowed us to have an EGM where we would nominate basically a director. It was called an outside auditor, but it was really a director. So this lawyer said he'd put himself up for nomination. And the great thing about the loophole was that the family couldn't vote. So it was truly a share, a vote of outside shareholders. It went along and we called this EGM. And the night before, I got a call and said, the CEO wants to meet you. Now, this wasn't the CEO, the founder CEO. This was his son, who was a bit of a bozo. And I went over to his office in Seoul. It was in the winter. It was dark and dreary, and he wouldn't let my lawyer come. So I just went over there, and I said, look, let's call this whole thing off. Let's do something on dividends. You've got the cash. You could do this. And he says, no, we're not doing that. And so we had the EGM, and, and we had a vote. And, of course, I lost. I didn't lose by much. And I was always very offended that the Korea Fund voted against me. But we lost. And it was kind of another wake-up call for me that this approach wasn't working. But just before I move on a little bit, Ted, about six years later, I got a uh, newspaper clipping from a client of mine who had been in Seoul who had remembered this fight I had. And it was a newspaper clipping where the CEO was going to jail. And not only he put himself in jail through bad behavior, but he put his mother in jail as well which has got to be about as poor a thing as any executive could possibly do. So there was kind of a somewhat revenge is best gotten slowly, Ted, you know? And so those were the early years of governance in Asia. And I know you've come a long way since then. So why don't you talk about some of your current practices in that area? So after Taekwong, and I was told, my lawyer called me up a couple of weeks later and said he had gotten a call from the Korean government. And the Korean government said, tell Mr. Lawrence not to come back to Korea. I'm thinking about this. How do you do this? And I had been working on it for a while. And I created this thing called modern finance technology. And the definition is important. So let me just give it to you. It's the provision of conflict-free and private advice to chairman and CEOs of public companies on issues of corporate governance and capital management with an objective of making better public companies. 
And there are a couple things in there, private and confidential, talking directly to the chairman and CEO. That we say capital management and corporate governance, that can really be anything that's on our agenda. But it was beginning to resonate with certain executives. And I remember a guy from Taiwan called me up and he said, Richard, can you come up here? We want to talk to you about this MFT thing of yours. And so that was beginning. I always said that when people lean in, they're listening to you. And when they lean back and cross their arms, they want you to get out of their lives. And so we have used modern finance technology a lot over the last two decades with great success. It's been one of our drivers. When you can take a company and move it from like 12 o'clock to one o'clock, we're not trying to move it to two o'clock or three o'clock or four o'clock, just move it a little bit to one. Then he begins to see the benefits of good corporate governance. Then he'll take it the rest of the way. And when we've seen that, we know we have what we call the real McCoy. These guys are the real deal. And so we've had some terrific runs with companies. What are some of those starting points of MFT in Asia? Well, the way we do it, it's really important that we don't go looking for trouble. Okay, I'm not an activist investor. So we go into companies hoping these guys are going to be great. But over the first year, we see that maybe there's some blockages, there's some gaps in his knowledge or expertise. And so we come after it. But hopefully over that first year, we've developed real relationship with these people. Honest, open, transparent, private, confidential. They begin to see that we're a little bit different. We're not in meetings trying to get you with questions. We're really trying to have an honest and open discussion. And so that opens the door to being able to discuss. And I've always said that you can discuss anything with Asians and be very frank and open and honest with them, but you've got to do it privately and confidentially. If you add more people in the room, the chances of success declines exponentially. And so we've talked about all kinds of issues under the umbrella of MFT. Great. So you said that was the first step, and then you turned to the S or social issues within the companies. Yeah. So social really began after 97, 98, and really with the explosion of Southern China manufacturing, Eastern China manufacturing, I was spending a lot of time in factories. And honestly, Ted, I walked into factories that I wouldn't have allowed my kids to work in. And what I saw, what I began to piece together is this concept of a pyramid. And if you think about a pyramid, and that includes the entire universe of public companies. And at the top are these very special, really terrific, world-class companies. But at the bottom, they're guys that really stumble along. Capital intensive, working capital intensive, guys with low margin, no pricing power. And what I began to piece together after 97, 98 was, was all these factories I was going into, which had these terrible environmental and social conditions, they were all at the bottom of the pyramid. And At that point, we really began to push Overlook as high up on the pyramid as we could. Now, when you get up at the top of the pyramid, it's not perfect, but they've made a lot more progress. And it's not perfect here in the United States or in Europe either. But I think that that's been a big driver of our social work. And how do you think about on the social side, that sounds like by virtue of the way you're running your portfolios, your concentrated portfolios, it's sort of like an exclusion of the bad. It is an exclusion of the bad, but you also have to remember in all of these factors, every one of the ESG factors, that there are companies undergoing intensive change. 
And so what can start as a company with bad social can actually morph over time into one that's much better. And so on all of this, we have a saying internally that Rome's not built in a day. And so you've got to keep your eyes open to change. And this is on all of them, really, frankly. Now, I know your main focus of late, of late being a while now, has been on environmental issues. Why don't you start with your perspective and your learning curve in that area? I moved back to California to give a bit of background. I moved back to California about 20 years ago. And I was very concerned about my kids. They were in elementary school, middle school. I was concerned about them living in California. And we started joining a group of doctors that went down to rural Honduras after Hurricane Mitch had basically wiped out the country. And we went down, just provided basic medical care. And I joined the medical mission because I speak Spanish. And it was great. I loved it. I was putting my daughter where she was bathing kids with scabies and impetigo. We were all sleeping on the floor. We were all getting sick. I mean, it was just it was just one of those horrible 10-day events, and we did it every year. But it developed a great social perspective for my daughter and understanding that more people need help. And along there, we came to a realization or that I didn't want to pass out pills. And one of the problems we saw in Honduras where the women and children were always sucking on nebulizers. And we'd take over a classroom of a school. And we, they were always around the outside of the classroom sucking on nebulizers. And I didn't know what the hell was going on, you know. No one could smoke. They couldn't afford to smoke. And then one day, my 11-year-old came back into the clinic, into the school courtyard and said, Dad, I figured out the nebulizers. And I go, what? And we went out into the town and into what we now know as a common Honduran home. It's a rectangle, plastic curtain down the middle, dirt floor, animals coming in and out. And over in the corner is a big stove, big round stove with like an oil barrel on top and big wide mouth with big logs going in and smoke coming out of it. And sometimes they had no chimneys. Sometimes they have chimneys that end below the eaves of the house so the smoke just circulated back in. You know, it was just crazy. And so we decided that what we'd rather do than pass out pills was build stoves. And so we started building stoves. And then we quickly ran out of money. And I figured out that there was this thing called carbon credits. And uh, we set out to get carbon certification to sell carbon credits to finance the construction of the stoves. And along that time, I was sitting with a guy who's been on your show, who's a CIO of a major university endowment. And he said, well, you should meet this guy, Jeremy Grantham. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm up in Boston. And so I went by Jeremy. And over time, I got to really know Jeremy Grantham, who's had a huge impact on my life. And what did he initially start preaching to you? Well, he initially started giving me $10,000, which I was really appreciative of for the stoves. And, and over a couple of years, he began to realize that I was a money manager also in Asia. And we began, I remember one afternoon, it must have been a quiet afternoon for Jeremy because we sat for two or three hours and just went through the whole entire world of money management, China. And he was lingering a lot on climate change and the problem of climate change. And we were selling carbon credits at the time, so I knew about climate change, but I really didn't know the scope of it and the scale of it. And Jeremy introduced me to Lord Stern's The Economics of Climate Change, which really goes through the global impacts, the extensive nature of the problem. So Jeremy then, on another trip, 
he agreed to capitalize Proyecto Mirador, a stove building operation, became effectively my partner. And so we've deepened it. And Jeremy is my partner in a lot of things now with regard to our work on climate change. So as you started to learn more from your conversations with Jeremy, what did you do about it in addition to what you were doing with the stoves in Mirador? Well, the first thing we did was I was always looking for anybody to buy my credit. So the first thing I did is I kind of forced my employees in Hong Kong to offset their emissions. I remember one year on our Macau offsite, I challenged everybody to say, okay, you, you don't want to buy my carbon credits. That's fine. But how are you going to offset your emissions? And I, I remember one of my analysts said, well, I'm going to plant trees on my balcony in Hong Kong. I said, like, John, you do that. Just come back and give me the numbers on that, really. And, and slowly but surely, all my colleagues in Hong Kong started to educate themselves that when you become carbon neutral, you all of a sudden begin to feel a little bit different. And you see the problem. And you begin to really see the problem everywhere. It's interconnected in so many aspects of our lives. It's not just rising temperatures, rising sea levels. It's calving of, of the glaciers. It's the acidification of the coral reefs. It's Greenland. And I started making my employees carbon neutral. And then shortly thereafter, overlook investments as a company became carbon neutral. And then about eight or nine years ago, we started taking action every year to outlaw an industry. And the early years, it was really a fight on my part. We started out with coal, coal mining, coal transportation. We outlawed fossil fuel refineries, which in Asia basically wiped out fossil fuels. But over the years, these debates amongst the partners have become much more interesting. And it's now the partners are saying, no, no, we're not going to outlaw that. That's too small. We've got to think bigger. And that really reflected our real understanding of the problems of climate change and how they translated down to our companies and our portfolio. So by outlaw, do you mean exclude those industries from consideration in your portfolio? Yeah, I do. We excluded them from the universe. But as I've gotten more educated on this, I've seen that companies can change. And so I think we need to be more open to not just hard-close certain industries. And I'll give you the example. My favorite example is a Danish company called Orsted. Orsted used to be called Dong, which was the Danish oil and gas company. And 12 years ago, 10 years ago, it was classic oil and gas company. And it transformed itself. 100% transformed itself from an oil and gas company into now the largest generator of offshore wind in the world. And so we see other companies. BP has announced that they're going to be carbon neutral by 2050. Shell is moving in that direction. And I think we can now be more nuanced in our exclusions while pursuing a policy of excluding industries every year. How did you think about the opportunity cost of exclusions? Well, Jeremy Grantham put out a document three or four years ago that said there was almost no cost to that exclusion. Okay, and this was when the divestment move really happened. People were extremely concerned about just the divestment point of view. So he went from 1926 forward, took out all fossil fuel companies, and the decrease in your performance was less than 0.5 percentage point over that whole entire period, or possibly even less. I can't remember the exact number. So I don't think it's that. But there's two other aspects of this, Ted. Number one is 
the divestment part, which we have pursued, is very straightforward. But then we also began to see which are the businesses that aren't what we call part of the problem, but that are a part of the solution. And then you start really expanding your research work into what companies are doing and how they're going to benefit or leverage climate change to their benefit. And here we were accelerated along this road through an investment we made about six, seven years ago in a company called China Yangtze Power. And this is the largest renewable energy company in Asia, one of the largest in the world. But from my perspective, why I really invested in it initially is it is the lowest cost provider of electricity in China, way cheaper than coal and all the other resources. And what we discovered as we got into China Yangtze Power was it has the best free cash flow of any infrastructure asset I had ever come across. So last year, it made about $5 billion US of cash flow, and they had to reinvest less than $200 million to maintain the dams, the hydroelectric dams. And so the cash inflow from this thing is just extraordinary. And so we went into it because it was really cheap cash flow. But then we also realized that it being the renewable energy, the lowest cost renewable energy in China gave it one hell of a franchise. And so we've begun to try to bring that discipline to the portfolio. As you got deeper into thinking through potential exclusions, seeing situations like Yangtze Power, what are some of the more subtle complexities that get involved in making these assessments? Well, first of all, in Asia, we have a terrible problem that of our universe of companies, 44% did not even release their carbon emissions. So we have to get them through comparisons. So there's a huge problem on getting Asian corporates to really embrace the need. And we've always told them, look, you can't reduce your emissions until you know fundamentally where they're coming from. Okay, so there's a lack of knowledge, there's a lack of acceptability or acceptance of climate change. I think they all realize it exists and it's real in Asia, but there's also this overriding reliance on government to solve all your problems. And then when you get deeper into it, just carbon accounting. Carbon accounting is like all accounting, (laughs) able to be manipulated. There are all kinds of games that companies play to show reduced carbon emissions from what they really are. And so the problems compound as you really get into it. So once you excluded a couple industries, how did you start integrating what you were looking for into your portfolio companies? We began to include scores on ESG for all the companies. And we had really three principles for that that we can get into. So that becomes just institutionally involved in our decision making. And I think that's the that's the critical thing. And it started, frankly, with me sort of pounding the table on stuff. But it's now been broadly embraced as we understand that having your money invested in companies that are part of the problem are going to put your returns at risk. Whereas having your money invested in companies that are part of the solution is going to be one of the main drivers to your performance. So what were those three principles? So we start out by saying that the first, you've got to have a clear understanding of the long-term impact of climate change on your business. Fundamentally, are your assets in the wrong place? Are your admissions too high? Stranded assets, stranded liabilities, transition risk of energy, coming disruption beyond just the physical climate risks. 
so that's fairly straightforward. And even if a company doesn't release their emissions or their emissions data, we can get it through international comparisons. But it's critical. What we're trying to get at, Ted, is that the companies have this. It's not enough for Richard Lawrence and his team and his partners in Hong Kong to have it. It's got to be the companies. So the second thing we're looking for is really detailed emissions data. This is absolutely essential. As I said, they can't reduce what they don't know. And so we support TCFD. We support CDP. We're pushing all our companies to undertake CDP work, which is formerly known as Carbon Disclosure Project. It's been very successful in Europe and the U.S., been very unsuccessful in Asia. But I tell companies, look, you have to do CDP very diligently for two years before you're really going to have good understanding. And then we talked about the accounting pitfalls and then the companies that are going to game this emissions data. So they deconsolidate selected subsidiaries. They don't consolidate all their subsidiaries, different rules for accounting and all of that. So, so really detailed emissions data. And it's part on us, Ted, that we need to be able to analyze that data. And then the third piece that we're looking for is clear involvement by the board of directors and the CEO. It's not enough for this to get to the CFO level. You've got to get higher up into the board level discussion. Delegation is not an acceptable outcome to us. And again, the board can't take actions without having the knowledge and the support from underneath them. So, and then when we talk to the board, when we engage the board, what we're looking for is the allocation of capital expenditure consistent with Paris Agreement. And it's really when you start misallocating your capex you're building in a problem for the next 15, 20 years. And so we want to see that tilt. So to go back to the BP story, when they say they want to be carbon neutral by 2050, it means they really need to change and reallocate their CapEx today. There's no quick solution in climate change. And so if we can get really good understanding of climate change on the holdings, detailed admissions data, and involvement by the board, that's about as best we're going to get. And the companies that are completing that would get an A grade from us. A lot of the times we talk about this and the examples you've given tend to be in and around the energy space. Electricity company, you talk about BP, even though that's not really in your investable universe. What's an example of company outside of that space where they might not have their lens as attuned to this, where you've talked to them and felt it relevant to kind of walk through each of those criteria? I think there are a variety of ways that we can interact with companies to push them further down the road on this. And they'll interact in a variety of ways. For example, we have a company in Taiwan that has an 8 million ton footprint. It's a big footprint. Okay. And we've pushed them to invest in renewable energy to get their energy consumption correct. And they now, with offtake agreements, have underwritten the investment of $2 billion of offshore wind in Taiwan. And I'm not saying that we get credit for that, but we were integrally involved. And I know we were the first outside investors to really raise this issue quite aggressively with them. Other companies where we think we have another company in Taiwan, which is a systems integrator providing components and services to system integrators around the world. Well, that business needs to pivot to incorporate climate change solutions in their business. And we've been talking to them for a number of years about trying to get them to move their allocation of industries that they're servicing away from 
carbon intensive industries more towards industries where they're going to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Where have you seen the progress thus far from the companies you're talking to about taking these initiatives seriously? It's hard because really until about a year ago when the global ESG movement began to really take off, and we saw it in the papers a lot, Ted, we would talk to people about it and it was just right over their head. They didn't need to listen. Now, over the last year, we've gotten a bigger baseball bat effectively. And so it's opening up opportunities for us to become more aggressive on writing, more aggressive on communicating, more aggressive on demanding things. But there's a lot of work. 44% of our portfolio got failing grades last year simply because they could not tell us what their emissions were. There's a lot of work that has to be done. And so of that 44%, as you then communicated to that to them, what was the range of receptiveness that you got back? We did a subset of letters last year, and we got about a 50% response rate. Now, that was a year ago. I think we'll get a higher response rate this year. One of the difficulties on this, Ted, is as an analyst, you know, you go into a company, you basically got an hour. It's very hard to fit this in. And it's very hard to have your whole investment team have the accounting knowledge to really be effective. And so what we've done is I have an analyst at Overlook that spends almost half her time on this with me. And so she and I are doing direct meetings, direct correspondence, which is just a meeting on ESG and elevate it that way. It's just not realistic to ask analysts who are in there trying to figure out what the competitive forces are or what pricing power is to deal with this as well in an hour. In addition to Jeremy, have you had the opportunity to talk to other managers about these issues and how you're approaching them? Not really. I mean, Overlook, our style is to be very low profile. And part of this whole thing, we follow MFT, which is private and confidential. My letters going out, no one's going to see those things except the chairman and CEO and whoever they decide to give it to. So we take that approach. I've never been a believer that because Richard Lawrence tells Vanguard to vote in a certain way, that Vanguard's going to vote in a certain way. We are advice, whether it's on governance or whether it's on environmental issues, that has to stand on its own. And so do you have sort of goals or aspirations with what you'll accomplish with this particular lens within your portfolio? Well, we've achieved a lot already. We have an extremely educated investment team. My partners are in total support on this. So we're not fighting this. We're not convincing. BlackRock comes out and says that they're going to be incorporate sustainability. We did this eight, nine, 10 years ago. So we're well down the path. We understand successes and failures, but there's a lot of work to do. So turn the lens on Overlook internally. You mentioned that your team was offsetting their carbon emissions. How did you think about you know, across the board, kind of the governance considerations and the social considerations internally within the organization? I think nothing against my partners because they're way more intelligent than I am, way more educated than I am. But in Asia, we were kind of in this vacuum. And so we needed to bring them along. And in classic kind of Richard fashion, he brings out the baseball bat first and the subtleties come out later, right? But the other example I love to give is I have eight kids and nieces and nephews. 
And 12 years ago, I started giving them a certificate with a photograph of a stove and offsetting their admissions. And I gave everybody slightly, I tried to figure out what everyone's admissions were. And so everyone was getting different numbers of tons. And today, two of those eight are in the environmental business. And they're going to be very big forces in the environmental business. And I think that that might have happened anyway. But engaging people on this, and I encourage all of your listeners to go offset their emissions and give those as gifts. And how about on the governance of the business and some of the social issues? As we really began to think about social issues at companies, it was a lot of factory conditions, environmental conditions and within factories. But there's also really a lack of women at the higher ups. And so we set out a long time ago to get better balance. And about five, six years ago, we reached our goal. And today, Overlook is 12 people. We're half female, half male. We're half Asian, half Westerners. Our median age is 41 years old. And that diversity adds complexity, but it also has richness in the investment making and the business decision making. And I credit Hong Kong, which is near and dear to my heart, as a place where you can achieve this. And it's very difficult to achieve it in other cities around the world. And so I'm deeply grateful that we've been able to headquarter ourselves in Hong Kong. It sounds like within the portfolio, there are certain lenses of effectively divestment, areas you don't want to be involved with, and an attempt to improve things on the investment side. But you run a concentrated portfolio, and it's fairly limited. Where have you drawn the line between what makes sense inside the business and what makes sense for you personally and philanthropically? There are stocks that we look at that don't necessarily please Richard Lawrence, but they're not on the exclusionary list. And in those conditions, I've just got to hold my tongue. Okay. But then when we go to Macau for the offsite investment, I might bring up that industry the next year, right? So we're trying. It's a balancing. Rome is not built in a day. But the important point is, is that if we really believe that companies that are part of the solution are going to outperform the next decade, there's no reason why anybody should be fighting this anywhere. And what have you done on the philanthropic side? Well, about four years ago, my wife and I decided that as we set up a foundation, began to really think about what we were going to do and a whole host of issues that we could have been involved with. I mean, there are lots of problems around the world that need to be solved. We came back to climate change. And so my wife and I really dedicated 95% of our philanthropic giving to fighting climate change. And we do it through a variety of ways. And while that community of philanthropists is growing, we are badly outmanned, okay? The fossil fuel industry spends way more than the whole group of climate philanthropists would pay or would spend every year. So it's a big fight. We're overwhelmed. We're outgunned. But it's an important fight to have. And so we are nearly 100% dedicated to that. And how have you thought about looking at those as maximum impact when you call them like philanthropic investment opportunities? We're trying to be as catalytic as we can. I'm constantly telling my wife, it's just like stock picking. You want everything, you know, superior business, management, integrity, bargain valuation, long-term duration, right? You want it all. (laughs) So we are really trying to be catalytic and we're also trying to be entrepreneurial. A lot of climate philanthropists are fantastic and they're critical. They're providing critical service to the world, but they're very bureaucratic and slow. And so being entrepreneurial means that you're able to take risks and we're looking for outside impact in various areas. So if you look over this path over the last eight or 10 years, 
what have you learned that you wish you had known when you started out thinking seriously about these issues? Well, I wish I had started earlier. I wish the whole world had started earlier. I think for me, as someone who's done well in life, I've been very blessed in a lot of ways. I went as a high schooler, I went to an all-boys boarding school in Northwest Connecticut. And the school had three sort of fundamental principles that I think a lot about. And the first one's simplicity of life. I really am trying to lead as simple a life as I can and not let wealth or power overwhelm you. And the second one is self-reliance, which is really the creed of the entrepreneur in many ways. And the last one is directness of purpose. I've always been a big one on focus, you know, and this is where it comes from. But directness of purpose within your wider life. I think when you put simplicity of life, self-reliance, and directness of purpose together, it's a good rule book for all of us. Great. All right, Richard, let's turn to some closing questions. And, you know, I know I asked you a few the first time around, but that was a while ago. And so what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Mountain biking on Mount Tam in Marin County. I've been doing it for 20 years and it's just the greatest place to get relief and energy. What's your biggest pet peeve? Well, these days it's attitudes towards China and this looming conflict that everybody wants with uh, China. It's just going to be so counterproductive for decades if we really get into a Cold War with China. And I just, I get so annoyed because I just don't see anybody presenting the other side of the case. It's just a, it's a ganging on and a tit for tat and it's going nowhere and it leaves me just appalled. What are the key tenets to the other side of the case? That over the last 35 years, we've helped 600 million people come out, out of poverty in China. And America gets a big part of the claim of that success. They are natural business people, instinctive business people. And so we actually work in the same culture. But problems have developed over the last 30 years. Problems that Bush didn't address, Clinton didn't address, Obama didn't address. And these problems got built up. And they didn't get addressed because we were stuck in wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And China wasn't a problem. Many of these problems could have been solved with private and confidential discussions with the Chinese, where you get in and talk frankly with them about their need to modernize. And they would have come back to us and said, we need to be involved in setting the rules for the WTO and WHO and so forth. And we could have had private and confidential discussions at the highest level. And we could have solved most of the antagonistic points but instead, we misunderstood the economics behind the trade deficit. Administration came in and it was a zero-sum game, deficit bad, surplus good. We got a deficit with China, they're bad, not understanding the value add of the trade deficit with the United States. And, and so we could have. There's also a second bucket of problems with China that are difficult and going to take a long time to solve. North Korea is a classic example of that. But we could have begun to engage on these issues. And then there's a third bucket about the right of this Communist Party of China to exist. And they're not going to negotiate on that. And so we shouldn't even discuss it. But the two countries could well have come together through proper negotiations. And one of the common critiques in the U.S. about addressing climate change is, well, the problem's bigger in China or China and India, and they're not doing anything about it. How do you 
turn that, if you were in a senior role in the U.S. government, what would you do to sort of change that perspective if it's not true? Or alternatively, how do you address that problem? Well, you have to address it through private and confidential negotiations at the highest level, first of all. Number two, you need to acknowledge the amazing investment that China has made in renewable energy. It far exceeds anywhere else in the world. And yeah, they got a lot more to go. But put this in the context of the arc of history and give them some credit for what they're doing. They signed up for Paris. They are aware of the problem. And part of it is you can be a little skeptical of the Chinese and say they have to do it because the coal pollution is killing their people and they're doing it for that reason alone. But my view is that's fine. If that's the reason you do it, you get going on it and you find that cities with no pollution that don't have any coal are going to be better for your people. And so they're willing to engage. But when you get in the tit for tat, you're not going to do anything. And so climate change, wealth inequality, these rewriting the rules of these international institutions, none are going to happen in today's world. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I'm increasingly concerned, and it's kind of connected to the last one, Ted, which is that politics seems to be trumping economics today. And I'm very concerned where this leads us to. At lots of levels, we're bailing out the weakest of the weak, and that's going to have some ongoing cost. We're building up debts in the United States at a level that's just, it scares me personally, and what the impact of that's going to be. What do you do for self-growth? Well, mostly I read. I've had a history of reading an investment book and another book for a long time. So I read, you know, in the industry, you get a lot of interesting things from commentators who are, the commentators I read are mostly friends of mine that I know, so I can put everything into context. It's just so amazing how the world keeps moving. And my dad, who was in the money management business, always used to come home at night and said that the best thing about this business is you get to learn new things every day. And here we are 50, 60 years later, and it's so true today. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Well, my mom told us always that fools' names and fools' faces always appear in public places. And so I've remained very private in absolutely everything I do. My dad taught me to care deeply about clients and deeply about the people that work for you. And it gives me great pride to see the well-being of my employees and the effort that we're making, all of us culturally, the effort all of us are making in supporting our clients. Great, Richard. Last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Well, not to be scared of bear markets. I think, uh, (laughs) I don't know if that's a life lesson or a business lesson, but we're all imperfect and we all have failings on life. So there's lots to improve. Richard, thanks so much for taking the time. Ted, it's always my pleasure. I'm delighted to do it. Um, And I'm really pleased that you've grabbed hold of ESG. It's critically important as we go forward. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show and I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.